Well, it's really good to see all of you here this morning. If you're, if you're a guest, I'm thrilled to death that you're here. And just so that you know, we are in a series this summer called Lifelines. And they are lines and passages of Scripture that folks here have chosen as their lifelines, the ones they hang on to in the tough times. And this morning we're in Romans chapter 8. Now, what's interesting to me is that not only did that surface here as a favorite chapter, in a national survey, it also was one of the top ten favorite passages of Scripture selected by people all across the nation, Romans chapter 8. And if I were going to choose a single chapter in the New Testament that, that is more hopeful than any other, I believe it would be Romans chapter 8. Now, obviously, the most, most hopeful event of all history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is recorded in the Gospels, not Romans. Ah, but Paul takes that event and shows us how that event brings hope to all other circumstances of our lives. In, in verse 11, this is what we read. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you. If that's the only verse we had in Romans 8, it would still be one of the most hopeful passages of Scripture in the Bible. Because he lives, we too have life. Now, <clears throat> before we get into the actual text this morning of Romans chapter 8, I want to make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to our understanding of hope. Because I think there, that we don't use hope like the Bible uses the word hope. And I don't think there's a day that goes by in our lives that we aren't talking about hope. Like, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or I hope Tim sings one of my favorite songs in church this morning. Or I hope the tests come back with good news. Or I hope I live long enough to see world peace. All those things, regardless of how important they may be, are temporary and uncertain at best. If it doesn't rain today, uh, or if it does rain today, or, or if we did sing uh, one of your favorite songs, or we didn't sing one of your songs, if the test results come back and they're not so good, uh, or, and if you never live to see world peace, that's okay. You're going to get through this life. Because that's the promise of what scriptures tell us. In the grand scheme of eternity, temporary hopes seem frivolous. We use the word hope like we would use the word wish, like, like carrying a four-leaf clover, like pulling on a wishbone, like rubbing a rabbit's foot in our pocket. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. That's how we use it. But when we come to the Bible, it's an altogether different picture. Hope in the Bible is an assurance. Hope isn't based in something. It is placed in someone. Genuine hope is never based on fame or looks or money or power. Those things are fleeting and temporary as well. True hope is what you can be certain of all the time. True hope is what you can be confident in all the time. And that kind of hope will change us. It can encourage us, it will remove fear, it will relieve doubt, it will give strength to get us through anything, it will give meaning and purpose to our lives, it will help us love more, it will help us understand more, forgive more, accept more, and trust more. That kind of hope is vital to life. That kind of hope is a lifeline, and that kind of hope is only available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the basis for every lifeline in Romans 8. As a matter of fact, he is the lifeline for all of us in this room. First lifeline comes in verse 1. 
And, and we're going to talk for just a minute about we remain hopeful despite our sin. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What a powerful lifeline. There is now no condemnation in Christ. Do you realize how powerful that is? When you hear the word condemned, what comes to your mind? It is not a beautiful picture. I mean, it is, the, it is in essence describing someone who has broken the law and is under a severe penalty. Now, you can talk about somebody being incarcerated, but that doesn't conjure up the same picture. A person that is incarcerated and a person that's condemned, two different things. Both may have broken the law, but the outcome of condemnation is just overwhelming. It's a harsh word because it describes a harsh conclusion. But what I want you to know, as harsh as that word is in the English language, it's even harsher in the original language as Paul uses it. When he uses it here, it's only the third time that it is used in the entire New Testament. And it's a forensic word that, that really means a, a, a judge placing sentence, but it's as if the sentence and the penalty is already being carried out. And when Paul talks about us being dead in our sins, that penalty is already carried out. Once we sinned, we broke this relationship with God, and our penalty is being carried out even as we speak. But the, the good news, what Paul writes is, he, he's not talking about, you're condemned. He says, there is now no longer any condemnation. He said, there's not a single penalty that will be applied to you because of Jesus Christ. It, isn't that terrific? That rings with hope. Now, we don't like to talk about sin. We'd much rather focus our thoughts on the hope aspect as opposed to the sin aspect, but you cannot, you cannot understand the hope and you cannot understand the grace apart from an understanding of sin. I received an email this week from a preacher friend uh, who ministers in a different state, and he was kind of pouring out his heart on some of the frustrations he was, he was feeling and the difficulty of his ministry. He said he had one, one of his leaders just left the church and started a new church where he could do it the way he wanted to do it. He had another leader that, that says he doesn't believe the Bible is reliable because it's filled with so many errors and shouldn't be used as a basis for faith. And he has another guy who says, don't preach on sin. I don't want you to preach on sin. I just want you to preach on grace. If you preach on grace, people will get it about sin. Just, just don't preach on sin. Now, I don't know about you. But when I never think about something, talk about something, don't read about it, don't, don't, don't pray about it, uh, you know, it kind of disappears from my mind. And we are masters at re rationalization. And if I can rationalize the fact, well, this isn't really a big deal. That's not a real big sin. That's not a real problem in my life. Just preaching on grace, just studying about grace isn't going to assume that I understand the power of sin that is at work in us. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, here's the gospel. You are more sinful than you ever dared believe. You are more loved than you ever dared hope. Boy, that's so true. We, we are a lot worse than we think we are when it comes to sin. And we are a lot more loved than we realize by God. And people will say all the time, well, I, I don't like to talk about sin because I feel guilty when I talk about sin. And I don't like to feel guilty. <laughs> I don't either. There is nothing fun about feeling guilty, but just because something is 
uncomfortable. Just because something doesn't feel good doesn't make it a good thing. Uh, it, I, there is something good about guilt. And you say, what in the world could there possibly be good about guilt? Well, let me see if I can explain it this way. On March 18, 1937, a spark ignited a cloud of natural gas that had accumulated in the basement of a school in New London, Texas. And the explosion was simply, I mean, absolutely devastating and destructive, at least. And, and they never were able to confirm how much devastation but at least 293 people died in that blast, most of whom were children and students in the school. The explosion happened because the school board had voted to siphon off the natural gas from a local oil company there, and it was being piped into the school to run the furnaces. But at that time, and in its natural state, natural gas has no odor, it has no color, and so nobody knew that the gas was building up in the building and then a spark from somewhere ignited it and the, and the devastation was, was terrible. I mean, it's the worst school disaster in American history. Nothing has equaled it, and, and in that town, it, it, <clears throat> they've hardly been able to survive. Some of you will remember Walter Cronkite, the, the news reporter, uh, some of you have studied him in history. Walter Cronkite was a young man working for United Press at the time, and he was sent to New London, Texas to cover the story. Uh, as you know, that was one of his early stories to cover. Uh, he went on to cover World War II and the Korean conflict and the Vietnam War and, and when we first put a man on the moon. I mean, he covered a lot of things, but he, he wrote decades later, later. He said, I did nothing in my studies nor in my life to prepare me for a story of the magnitude of that New London tragedy, nor has any story since that awful day equaled it. We're talking about devastation. Now, that's a picture of sin. Out of, it just destroys beyond what we can think. But out of that devastation and that moment, the federal government came up with a regulation for gas companies that they had to put an odorant in natural gas. Now, we've become so accustomed to that odor and the smell of natural gas that we forget that's not natural to it. That's added to it. And it's added to it, and it's uncomfortable. But the moment you smell it, you rush to find out where's that leak coming from, because that's danger. Guilt is to the spiritual life what that noxious smell is to natural gas. It serves as a warning that may help save your life. Feeling guilty might just keep you from rebelling against God because that's really what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God's laws that are intended for our good. When you read the next verses, Paul reminds us that there are two forces at work for control of our lives. There's the rebellion of our sin at work, and there's the redemption of our Savior at work, and your choice is going to make the difference. Live according to the sinful nature, and you'll die. Live according to the Spirit of God, and you'll live. Now, I hear people all the time say, well, <clears throat> I'm just hoping I get to heaven because I really do more good than I do bad. Seriously? You're really going to put your hope in your goodness? Now we're back to crossing our fingers uh, carrying uh, rabbit's feet, uh, four-leaf clovers, wishbones, and the whole kind of thing. You're, you're basing your hope on something that you can't be confident in. Do you really believe your goodness is a place to put your hope? After all, we've all sinned. It's not like there's somebody here that is perfect. Romans even tells us that. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Do you really think that somehow, somehow, you can make it up to God that you've sinned? What, what, what are you going to use? It, 
How are you going to say, oh God, I'm, I'm really sorry. I will make it up to you. How? <clears throat> let, me, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Uh, I think you all know Alan Phillips. Alan is, uh, and Sharon are sitting here this morning. Alan's our Bible guy. Uh, you know, did all the Bible answers. Now, I, there's, I have not been able to substantiate this story. The story, however, is told that when Alan and Sharon were dating, that Alan was just so head over heels in love with Sharon. I mean, he was willing to do whatever he had to to keep her, uh, her love. And so when they got engaged, Sharon presented him with a contract that said, Alan, every penny that you ever make in all your life, you will give to me. And because Alan was so in love with Sharon, he just readily signed off on it. And well, everything was good for about the first five years. And then Alan decided it'd be really, it'd be really nice to have an ice cold can of Pepsi. You know, and so for the next 10 weeks, Alan sneaked a nickel into his pocket out of his paycheck until he'd saved up 50 cents to buy that Pepsi. And he, so he clunked the coins into the machine that Pepsi dropped down. Oh, it was ice cold. He popped the top and took a big drink. And, oh, it tasted so good. And Sharon came around the corner and she said, Alan, where did you get that Pepsi? And he hung his head and he said, oh, Sharon, I'm so sorry. He said, for the last 10 weeks, I've just kept back just a nickel. He said, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. I'll pay you back. And she said, with what? <laughs> and she'd be right. Because you see, if you'd signed a contract that said every penny you ever make, I will give to you, then everything you ever make already belongs to her. How are you going to make that up? Now, the story isn't true. Well, I, I don't think. I haven't been able to substantiate it. You can ask him afterwards. But the point is true. You can say, God, I'm sorry, I will make it up. But the point, with what? What righteousness do you have with which to cover your sin? Which makes this so powerful. When, when Paul writes, he said, but he has paid your penalty at the cross so that you can have hope of life everlasting. The hymn writer had it right. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to his cross. I cling. That's a lifeline. Here's the second lifeline. We remain hopeful despite our suffering. Verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Oh, folks, everyone suffers. There's not a soul in this room that doesn't somehow, someway, face trials and suffering in their life. And sometimes I think we have this mistaken idea that we, we have to be to acknowledge that is, is somehow unspiritual. How are you doing? Oh, everything's just all perfect in my life. Your, your life may be falling apart, but you wouldn't admit it because somehow that seems uh, unspiritual. And sometimes I think that we have this, this concept that we have to be superhuman to handle the trials and the suffering that comes along our way or we'll be viewed as spiritually weak. None of that's true. Suffering is a part of life, and recognizing it as such is important. You don't need to let suffering get the best of you, but you don't need to deny it either. Acknowledge it for what it is. It's a part of living in a broken world. I'm going to suffer because I live here. You're going to suffer because you live here. We're going to get through it, but I'm not going to deny it. As a matter of fact, in this chapter, Paul goes on from this verse, and he even talks about creation. He says, even creation groans like a woman about ready to give birth to a child. It's waiting for the day when God will take its brokenness and make it new again. 
So when you groan through your suffering, just remember the whole world, even creation as God designed it, is groaning, waiting for the day of redemption. You may, you may remember back in 2008, the youngest daughter of songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman died tragically in a, in a very freak car accident. The well-known musician and his family struggled as they dealt with the crushing blow of losing five-year-old Maria. In the midst of their pain, a pastor friend who had also lost a child in an automobile accident consoled them with these words. He said, remember... Your future with your daughter will be far greater than your past with her. Your future with your daughter will be far greater than your past with her. Suffering can blind us to our future if we're not careful. It can make us feel like there is no reason to go on. But Paul reminds us that our present suffering cannot even begin to compare to our future glory and our future experience. For all of us who have lost children at any stage, we need to be reminded that our future with our children is greater than anything that we have experienced in this life. Wow, what incredible hope. Now you have a choice when it comes to your suffering. You're going to have tough times. You're going to suffer through life. There's going to be low moments in your life. So you have a choice. You can either... You can either let the suffering overwhelm you or you can overcome it with your attitude in Christ. It's your choice, though. The suffering is here. How you deal with it is your choice. Back in World War II, they started building a road between the lower 48 and Alaska. It was finished, I think, and opened in 1940. It's called the Alcan Highway or the Alaska-Canada Highway. And uh, for years, parts of it were paved and parts of it were uh, mud and rock and that type of thing. And, uh, and today it's all paved. But if, if you were traveling up there by, by vehicle in the 1960s, when you hit the Alcan Highway, you would have seen and been greeted by this sign. Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. <laughs> That's not a bad thing to remember in life in general. Choose the rut you're going to travel carefully because you're going to be in it through the rest of your life. And you can either let that rut be the suffering that gets you down or it can be the hope that you have in Christ that even what you cannot see, he can bring together for good. And then Paul goes on and he reminds us this. In verse 24, he says, but hope that is seen is, why, that's no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, what we wait patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. What this says is that when you, when you have hit a point in your life when you don't know what to pray or how to pray, God says, that's all right, my Spirit in you will intercede for you. Is that not a tremendous lifeline? On the days when things are so bad that I don't even know how to pray, the Spirit of God in me is praying for me and on my behalf and taking to God what I can't even verbalize myself. Wow. Here's the third lifeline. 
We remain hopeful despite our circumstances. I think if we took a poll this morning, Romans 8, 28 would be the favorite verse of most people out of this passage of Scripture. And it goes like this if you don't have it committed to memory already. And we know that in all things, God works for good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Folks, I've held on to that lifeline more times than I care to count. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that everything in our ha- that happens in our life is good. doesn't mean that. It does not mean that God takes the bad things in our life and transforms them and suddenly they become good things. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that no matter what circumstances we face in life, no matter how bleak or unsettling, how heartbreaking or gut-wrenching, how unexplainable and incomprehensible, God can still use those events and bring good into our life at that time or into His eternal plan. I've said it many times, and I firmly believe it, God never wastes an experience in our life, and He knows how to lead us to ultimate victory. He knows how to win the game. Now, I I don't know about you, but I never cease to be amazed at the fans at a ball game, especially a basketball game. If you've ever gone to Assembly Hall and seen one of the IU basketball games, it's sometimes entertaining to watch the fans. Some people act as if their life depended upon how the team does and the outcome of the game. It's, it's humorous. And, and everybody knows how to coach better than the coaching staff. <laughs> I hurt for the coaching staff because, every, I mean, people are saying, you ought to call a timeout, call a timeout. And then when they call a timeout, why would you call a timeout now? Did you ever ask yourself the question, why do coaches call timeouts when they do? They, they never happen the same in any game. I mean, the next game, the timeouts will be altogether different, uh, and then the following game, they'll be altogether different. There's a lot of reasons why to call a timeout. A coach might call a timeout because he's seen a flaw in the opponent's defense, wants to point that out to his players. Or he might want to stop the momentum of the other team and, and, and slow things down. He may want to make an important substitution. He may want to try and ice a free-throw shooter on the other team in hopes that he'll miss. He might use it to stop the clock near the end of regulation to draw up a final plan. Now, there's... There's about five or six different reasons right off the top of my head, and and there are dozens more why a coach calls a timeout. Timeouts are determined by the flow of the game, the nature of the opponent, and the time remaining. They also are dictated by the coach's unique skill set, his personal knowledge of his players, and his awareness of what it will take to win the game. We get that. Why can't we let God do the same in our life? When the interruptions come and when the timeouts come and it seems like our lives are silent or quiet or God is absent or missing, he may be so much at work bringing all the pieces of the puzzle together. After all, his unique skill set and he knows us better than anybody else. He knows what it takes to win the game and he knows what the opposition is and he calls timeout in our life every once in a while to get us back on track. And our hope is in him, even when we may not understand how he's working. Rabbi Zacharias said, faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power, so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence is in him because of who he is. And to this marvelous promise, Paul adds this lifeline in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God gave up his son for our lives, do you think he's going to abandon you when you need him most? 
No. Actually, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how Romans 8 ends. And it is such a powerful passage of Scripture that I want you to read it out loud with me. And I want you to stand as we read the Word of God together. And so, Look at the screen. We're going to read it out and think about what you're reading and the power of the hope that is in these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Oh, amen. You can, you can have a seat. Therein lies our promise. And you say, well, is, is hope really a big deal? <laughs> you won't survive without it. You won't survive without it. John Ortberg, in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, cites a medical study of 122 men who had suffered their first heart attack. And the study was to determine how much their attitudes of optimism or pessimism, their attitude of hope or hopelessness, affected perhaps the outcome of their life or a second heart attack or even their deaths. And the study went on to show this. It said, of the 25 most pessimistic men, 21 had died before the eighth year following their heart attack. Of the 25 most optimistic men, only six had died by the eighth year after their heart attack. Loss of hope increased the odds of death more than 300%. It predicted death more accurately than any of the medical risk factors, including blood pressure, the amount of damage to the heart, or the cholesterol level. And then Ortberg adds this observation. He said, it's better to eat Twinkies in hope than to eat broccoli in despair. Amen. <clears throat> hope is a healer, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. I've done a few hundred funerals in my ministry, and I know that there are plenty more ahead. And it still remains true to this day. I've never seen an exception to it. That if I had no other evidence of the power of hope in Jesus Christ than what I would had observed in the difference between a non-believer at a funeral and a believer at a funeral. It would be more than, more than I need to convince me that only in Jesus Christ is my hope for eternity. You see, the grief is different. The tears are different. There is a hopeful grief and there's a hopeless grief. There are hopeful tears and there are hopeless tears. Everybody grieves. But, but the hopeful tears and the hopeless tears tell the difference in the story. Jesus Christ has given us a 
hope. Expectant grief points us to the hope in Christ. Hope isn't just for the future, folks. Hope is for right now. It ensures our survival through this broken world. When we live by the power of Christ in us, there is hope that our marriages will last, that our families will be strong and healthy, that our friendships will endure, and that I will live with purpose and meaning all my days. Life can be good even in this broken world because of our hope in Christ. You see, if He's for you, and He is, who can be against you? Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ except, except for you. If you choose not to follow Him, you'll be forever divided from His love. And that's your choice. He won't force Himself on you. Your choice. You need hope to survive in Christ. Do you know him as your Savior this morning? If not, while we stand and while we sing, you come and give your life to Jesus Christ.